Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Amaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. Hi, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about the neurodiversity movement, and probably step one in talking about it is explaining what that is. Uh, but we're also going to find out you know, why and how did it come about. And we're pleased to have as our guest in joining us in this discussion is Dr. Emma Gerard. She's a licensed child psychologist, certified global trainer in parent-child interaction therapy or PCIT. She's faculty at the UCR School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Neuroscience. She's the lead author of the book, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy with Toddlers, Improving Attachment and Emotion Regulation. And she has a great deal of experience working with children on the autism spectrum and those diagnosed with ADHD. Dr. Gerard, thank you for joining us for this episode. Happy to be here, Aaron. Well, I, I'm just going to throw it to Tosha. I feel like you know some things about the neurodiversity movement. This is not something that I have a lot of knowledge about. So can you explain to our listeners what this is? Okay, so basically the reason I thought we should do this episode is because the neurodiversity movement is this new movement. It is... Um, I, I've seen it in interacting with families in the clinic. I think we probably all have encountered families who may be who may be ascribed to the neurodiversity movement, um, especially for those of us who work with children and their families. But I want to look at this um, in all sincerity because I think it has really great points that we should consider in moving forward in mental health as a field. Um, and I don't really know much about it myself. You know, I've read a little bit about it um, and I've read a little bit more about it in preparation for this show. And basically what I've found is that the neurodiversity movement is itself a spectrum of, um, of different opinions. It seems like the most popular um, uh, point about the movement online, at least of what I was seeing, was kind of this idea that um, certain certain disorders, uh, mainly autism, ADHD, and learning disabilities, um, are championed more as normal variations of the brain rather than an illness or a disability specifically. And that the individuals with these disorders uh, we should really be highlighting their strengths rather than seeing them and pathologizing them based on their um, their their weaknesses. Um, so treatment should be focused on strengths rather than you know fixing or adjusting their weaknesses to fit better into our society and our expectations. Um, I I. So that, that's where we should start, I think. And then we can talk a little bit more about maybe some other opinions about what the neurodiversity movement means um, as we move in our discussion. Does a lot of this have uh, from the folks that have been labeled uh, and they believe that this has caused some mm -hmm. stigma against them, people that treat treating them as abnormal or different, is, is a lot of the folks that are the, the primary movers and shakers of this movement, the, the folks that have been diagnosed with uh, uh, autism, for example. 
I think so, but you know, I'm not really sure. I I know that there are a lot of people on the mental health professional side who are pushing this forward as well. It seems like some of this is coming from academics and from uh, actual more kind of theoretical study of the sociology of disability and uh, the phenomenology of kind of how this presents itself in our society and how someone gets um, labeled as disabled. Yeah, that's right. So one of the other parts of the uh, neurodiversity movement, so I think the two articles that really most clearly summarizes what I'm seeing online are these two blog articles on Scientific American. One was written by Simon Baron Cohen in 2019 called The Concept of Neurodiversity is Dividing the Autism Community. And then the other is actually a reaction to his blog uh, opinion piece uh, written by Ayana Balin in 2019 called Clearing Up Some Misconceptions About Neurodiversity. So basically, Simon Baron Cohen is saying that, um, is making some points about just even addressing the terminology. So he says, disorder is when an individual shows symptoms that are causing dysfunction and when the cause is un- un- unknown, while the term disease is used when a disorder can be ascribed to a specific causal mechanism. Disability is when an individual is below average on a standardized measure of functioning and when this causes suffering in, partic- in a particular environment, whereas difference simply refers to a variation in a trait like having blue or brown eyes. And he also talks about how this neurodiversity movement seems to be dividing the community in the the autism community specifically between those families who have a loved one with serious, severe autistic symptoms, such as aggression, you know, lack of verbal skills, um, and then uh, another part of the spectrum of those individuals who are um, what has been called in the past as high-functioning autism um, or those individuals with lots of lots of um, high-intelligent um, but maybe some stimming behaviors or things like that. Um, and then in this response from Ayana Balin, she's coming at it from like what you were saying, Alan, more of a history of uh, the social model of disability, where she's saying that um, the dis- the term disability really refers to a system of political and social repression of impaired people by non-impaired people. So the impairment is, you know, the... Um, um, let's say someone it's their example that they give is someone who uses a wheelchair are they disabled in a world that's full of ramps and elevators that that is um what she's saying what her argument is so just for all of those folks out there who were definitely asking them this question yes uh simon baron cohen is in fact sasha baron cohen's cousin (laughs) that is true wait really yep uh, and <laughs> yeah, so, so okay. I also think it's worth mentioning though, as we embark on this episode that we are also talking about ADHD here in mm-hmm. that some of this movement has been applied to ADHD 
And that the term being stretched or the community maybe being stretched to that diagnosis as well, I think creates some of the more interesting questions here and, and kind of um, might make for interesting conversation. Like what? Well, ADHD has some famous outcomes that are often cited by child psychiatrists when people bring up the long-term potential effects of something like Adderall or the risks of being on Adderall. And then someone might say, um, okay, well, well, what about the effects of not having been medicated throughout one's life and the, the effects of untreated ADHD? Um, and I encourage the listener, I don't have the actual list right in front of me, but I encourage the listener to, to Google it. It's everywhere, but I think some of them are like um, lower marital satisfaction, uh, fired at higher rates. There's all kinds mm. of, of outcomes that make it very difficult for someone to want to see this entirely as uh, something where the viewpoint of society might need to adapt to me is compassionate towards the patient, right? Because until society does make that adaptation, which maybe it very much needs to make the patients who we, who we kind of don't treat fully for also their deficit are at a disadvantage and, and strengths-based is I think fantastic and, and much uh, lacking in medicine. But mm -hmm. I think the reason people are coming to us is because there's a deficit that we can actually do really wonderful things for. Yeah, Alan, I think as I hear you talk about this, and of course, being strength-based, one of the things that I see as a provider is there's a push and pull between families about how do I get access to resources? If I don't have a label, then I, I'm not allowed access to resources. So is the question that the label gets you access, or should we really be saying society-wise, there needs to be access for all? It shouldn't have anything to do with a labeling in order to get resources because then families are pulled. Do I want to label you for access to sources or do I not want to label you? But then right. you might be prevented from accessing things. And it's a really tough call, especially for a parent when they're thinking, I have to make this decision and he's four. How is this mm. going to impact him later in life? That's yeah. And one application of that, that I think is something we could absolutely learn from the neurodiversity movement. And this is just something that I applied, I don't know that it's a, an actual suggestion that, that they're making. So if I'm sort of misattributing the motivations here, I apologize. But I feel like the idea of all of the testing accommodations that we have right now, if we were to just make a rule where, you know, people can take as long as they want on most tests, um, and there wasn't this kind of idea that certain people get extra time, and then those people get singled out and get stigmatized. I don't know that that would really hurt anyone. And that's a good point, Alan. What, what's the impact? And I think it's more about the impact it may make on the school system. How do they set up for the space to do that? How do they then entertain children who finished early versus those who haven't finished yet? So I think it's more about the pragmatics. And so the simple solution is separate out so you can meet that individual need because not knowing how to do it in a, in a more um, inclusive setting of an entire classroom. Right. What about you, Aaron? Do you have any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, um, the, I I agree with Dr. Girardi. You know, that we, we would have to reform or revamp the whole system because, yeah, if when when you get labeled with a diagnosis, that drives the treatment and funding and the money. So we, it, it's kind, it's sort of an incentive to get labeled and get labeled in greater, greater detail in order almost to you could ha, you could make a case like, oh, this now we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper and labeling people in more fine detail. But then that means that gives them access to more services and more help and more assistance. But yeah, we would have to reform the whole system. It, it also, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how the thoughts about reforming just the DSM and think looking mm-hmm, at different absolutely. abilities and different cognitive abilities and different yeah. uh, uh, attributes and traits, including strengths in there. I do think that that would have a change. I definitely, we, we look at, and we're good at, I'm just, I'll speak for myself, we're good at identifying deficits and problems and framing things as such. So That's I, the medical model. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, uh, you know, Dr. Gerard, uh, if you were going to reform the system, if you were going to um, encourage or build into the system a understanding or appreciation of strengths, and of differences with that, you know, trying to avoid as much as possible the stigma of labels. What? How would you do it? Like, what? How would you try to at least meet some of the the requests of the neurodiversity movement? I think the first step is that we have to really look at individual family values and family culture, because there's so much about this is either my clinic or my program, and this is what we can give you, and you must fit this model. Instead of really meeting with the family, what's your value? What are your culture? What would you like your child to gain? And then can you create a fit based on those family values and cultures and what you have to offer? Um, Because I think that conversation is completely missed half the time. It's I'm the expert. Here's what you're going to do instead of what do you want to see have happen? What are your values? What are your beliefs? Can I then add any of that to the work I can give you? It's very much a consumer driven uh, an individual and family driven kind of and, and a system for, to seek services where it starts there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about the neurodiversity movement, uh, what it is, how it came about, and perhaps how we can address it and reform the system to meet some of the concerns. And we're doing that with our guest, Dr. Emma Gerard. She's an expert with uh, a, 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 folks with, uh, they're on the autism spectrum and people with ADHD. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Tosh. I think, I think something of interest would be like trying to consider where this movement originated. Like how did it get started? There must have been some lack or whole missing piece that, you know, individuals with ADHD and autism felt could be improved upon, right? Yeah. So there was a, I, I had looked into this a little bit, but the sort of the origins and, and it, it seems like the actual real origin was in academics, but I imagine it was responding to a perceived, um, well, I perceived kind of makes it sound, invalidates it. I, th- I imagine it was re- responding to some of the very valid, you know, concerns about the medical establishment, like paternalism and uh, like the feeling that people have of being labeled when they get diagnoses and et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. There's there's this book that I really enjoyed reading. It's called um, Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry M. Prezant. He's a PhD and he studied speech language pathology. And he came into the world of autism. Um, but his book is, I don't know, must be like 10 years old or something like that. Uh, maybe longer. Maybe it was published before that. But um, yeah, it. I like to recommend this to my uh, the families that I work with who have a loved one with autism because it does take this very individualistic approach of um, considering each individual child uh, at based on their strengths um, and being receptive to their traditionally characterized behaviors that are autistic such as flapping their arms or echolalia um, as a self-soothing mechanism and rather than fixing it to make it go away you know how do you utilize that as a coping skill when they're stressed out or something like that it's a great book I really recommend it it's interesting you bring that point up Tosha because Mm. one of the things we look at in working with children on the autism spectrum in PCIT mm-hmm. is that there was a, a belief that if a child was stemming, that you would ignore that behavior. You would avoid talking about it. Um, and what we found is actually, if you imitate the behavior and show the child that you see what they're doing, it actually calms down because the child then feels like I'm communicating to you. Yes, you're responding mm-hmm. back. Thank you for acknowledging. Right. And so there's the sense that sometimes what you need is a bit of reflection and then moving forward. Um, but there's that hesitancy, like, oh, it's odd. I don't want to, I don't want to reinforce odd behavior instead of no, 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 this is a communication right. skill. Absolutely. There's a purpose to the behavior. Yes. That's what he really, um, uh, per- he, that's what he really, uh, champions. He also has a podcast actually. And I just read that he's a child and adolescent faculty member at the Brown school of medicine. Mm. Okay. Alan, uh, I'll say hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, this stimming idea. I, I love, I think, and, and so Emma is an expert on parent child interaction training and, or parent child interaction therapy. That's it, Alan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I, which I am a, a very new student of, uh, but I, to add some eccentricity to the podcast, which is of course my specialty. Uh, I have, I have done stimming after working with autistic patients myself, simply because like I saw them doing it and it seemed fun. And I heard this idea that, you know, by like uh, flat, by kind of opening and closing their hand in the corner of their eye, they're adding some visual stimulus and that's exciting for them. And I've always been that you know, I've always seen the joy in like having a pen and zooming it through the hallways as you're walking and pretending it's a spaceship and making noises. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not willing to let go of that just because I'm not five. And for me, I think this is one of those things where I really like the idea that, and, and maybe this is me again, pinning my own thing on the neurodiversity movement, but this is a behavior that's fun that we can learn from folks on the autism spectrum. Absolutely. Well, and I think it gets into this concept that there are certain um, ways that you display emotions that are acceptable versus unacceptable, right? And, and emotions are not good or bad. They're simply emotions. 
So if you're excited and you show that by flapping your hands, how is that a negative thing? That's the way you communicate that you're excited. Right. Right. And, and I think it's, it's also worth saying that any, you know, I, I, we've been, I think, intellectually honest with each other in, in the discussions here and, and before this about kind of some resistance we feel towards this newness um, and it's newness. And we haven't heard a thousand different people to explain it to us. And we haven't heard about it in medical school and we haven't heard about it growing up. And because of that, we misunderstand it for sure. And we're not doing it justice for sure. And uh, we have a lot to learn about it. And likely we will, a lot of what we do learn will be all kinds of merits and justifications that we, as of right now, don't know about. Yeah, I think that this is coming from a place of need. And so we need to listen and incorporate um, the needs into our treatment as providers. I mean, when I was looking into you know, specific recommendations and things. I, I came across Temple Grandin's um, recommendations for schools specifically. So Temple Grandin, she's a speaker uh, for the autism community. She has autism. Um, and she recommends project-based learning opportunities and mentoring, specifically those two things. Also encouraging children to try new things, which I think goes to, you know, building resilience. Um, also um, just finding new interests for kids that, that they can uh, hopefully find some strengths in and, and build on that. Absolutely, Tosha, because when you think about role modeling, if, if you're doing hands-on projects, then you have that ability to see and have someone um, demonstrate skill development, and then you can mimic that skill development. If it's never demonstrated and there's not project-based interaction, how do you then learn that skill? It's not always through written language or through reading of word, right? There is an application point to it. And I think that's really important as we think about inclusion, right? Because it's, it's easy to diagnose based on symptom management. If you don't have these things, whew, we don't have to worry about it. If you do have these things, ah, then we go this direction. And I think that's why it's really hard to move away from that model because it makes it easier to organize as a medical provider. Exactly. Prioritize and uh, come up with a treatment plan. So another recommendation that I was looking at was for workplaces. So um, different things I saw online were recommendations that employers can set up different workplace environments to accommodate for neurodivergent people, uh, different work schedules, um, different modes of operation or, you know, the way the way that things get done in a place of work. I think didn't we see that through the pandemic for even uh, what you would call non-neurodiverse population? Like, no, there's no way we could all work from home. And what do you know? Everyone working from home. Um, mm. and finding actually coming back to the office because maybe they liked it or they're so thrilled because it's really hard to do things work from home if you have a big family and lots of other activities happening. And so focus is really then taken away. So it's yeah. possible. I think one of the questions that the neurodiversity movement brings up is, does a neurodivergent person need to change or does society need to change? And And in general, I think that's such an important question is, do we adapt ourselves or do we adapt society? And, 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 and we as, as 
psychiatric and psychological providers, we kind of have an, an answer to that question, unfortunately, built into our profession, right? But but that gets complicated with the role of healthcare provider as advocate. And some of the changes that these that this movement could bring about, I think are very exciting, like making the workplace more humane. And, and some of this stuff that's coming with, I think like a largely millennial led movement about work coming second to human life is very much needed in the United States where we have these embarrassingly short um, maternity leaves and all kinds of embarrassing kind of situations with our workplace environments. So I'm, I don't know, I'm all for learning more about it and, and applying it to our advocacy work. I'm going to think like, um, try to think practically about how we could possibly reform the system. So there's going to be, so the, the, the aspect of accommodations. So, uh, that sounds like that would take more money and time and space that if we're going to uh, as as much as we can fully accommodate folks on the neurodiversity spectrum uh, like uh, much more than we do now I, that's why and then we would have to almost provide um like in more individualized assessments of folks rather than kind of grouping them with labels uh, and based on only um, you know deficits and comparisons with folks that do not uh, uh, you know, have the, those type of neurodiversity profile. So this is going to lead to a lot of tax money. I'm, I'm also thinking this is going um, uh, to, there's going to be a little bit of um, uh, uh, intransigence with people that do not want to have any more accommodations and are, are almost mad when we talk about accommodations. Right, right. Let's that, see this whole thing as like entitled millennials taking over and and you know in the same way that i think when we, we just had dr marshall forcing on to talk about what the the hiv pandemic and and how that related to kind of com coming out as gay and, and you know i imagine when when folks were first coming out as gay it created a lot of shelter and safety for for folks who were bi or folks who other folks who were gay to come out. And in the same way, if we start accommodating some of these people, maybe all kinds of human beings on different spectrums will feel a little safer doing what they do. And will be able to maybe people who don't who aren't on the autism or ADHD spectrums will be able to work a little easier, breathe a little easier and and chafe a little bit less. You're talking about like destigmatizing. I'm not just talking about destigmatizing. I'm talking about in a workplace environment. Okay, like for the tests, right? We were talking, I, I brought the idea up of like, mm. okay, maybe everyone gets as much time as they want on a test. Maybe someone who doesn't have ADHD, but just fine, but has like a back problem, let's say, or whatever, and, and doesn't love sitting in one place for an hour and a half and just going full force. Um, maybe they could get the time to get up and do some pushups uh, in the middle of, of the exam. Or maybe they, maybe they could get the time to write down a really cool thought that, that they had and not worry that they're losing exam time. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the devil's advocate, Alan, though. Can we really have a school where there's no limit on time that you take a test? I'm just, I don't think it's that crazy. Right I don't so think I it's think, that crazy. I, I mean, think this maybe is a bringing, five hour limit. I think this is bringing up, uh, I'm going to, someone said push pull, but that's the perfect description because this is what this is, right? A push pull because we're talking about, changing society like schools workplaces 
how we treat patients and medicine and therapy. Um, that's a big change, like you're saying, Aaron. That's going to take a lot of rethinking, a lot of money, a lot of time. So, what do we do with the kids who are struggling in schools, the adults struggling in workplaces now? Um, it, there's this push pull of should we be advocating to change society or helping our kids survive Adapt. in the society that they're living in right now? And I think okay. the answer is both. Yeah, combination. I'm going to ask a question. Not just Dr. survive, Dr. but thrive. Thri- thrive in this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going to ask Dr. Gerard a question about, I I have this idea about teaching kids early on for these kind of mind expanding ideas of uh, normal, abnormal, you know, what's acceptable, not acceptable, things like that. Uh, 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 no pressure, but what are your thoughts about how expanding the kind of learning other than just, you know, math and science, which I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to in English and things like that. Uh, but what are your thoughts about uh, this kind of psychological skill set? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're missing a lot of elements and whether that's inclusion of all students into the same classroom setting, but yeah, we're missing music. We're missing theater. We're missing some of those arts and those other ways of expression that are also forms of intelligence, that are forms of um, communication. And when those are taken out, you miss a whole group that that's their strength. And that's what Alan's saying. If we're being strength-based, we have to include strength-based in all of our educational settings. And they're not there unless you're fortunate enough to have the funds to do those outside of school privately on your own, then maybe you get access, but that's not true for everybody. So it goes back to how I, my first thought was, we're really talking about access for all or symptoms to qualify to gain resources. And, and in the doctor world, strength space doesn't make it through the pipeline, right? So, so, uh, you, you're, you, the, the note template might have you identify two strengths, but that's not carried through to the treatment plan. And like, okay, you have the strength that you really like skateboarding. We're going to assign you to skateboard three times a week. It usually doesn't get there. And like Aaron said, it's because of time and money. It's because that's not what's getting people paid. And so it drops off. And that's all the time we have for this edition of let's get psyched. Today, we talked about the neurodiversity movement and the practicalities of it. Thank you to our um, guests that joined us, Dr. Gerard. Dr. Gerard, thank you for joining us for this episode. Into this Appreciate discussion. the invitation. Also, thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you could write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.